For our scripture reading, we turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We'll begin reading with verse 14. Now, about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught, and the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keepeth the law. Why go ye about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast the devil who goeth about to kill thee. Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave, you, you, gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receive circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit, we know this man whence he is. But when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. Then they sought to take him. But no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? The Pharisees heard that. The people murmured such things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while I am with you. And then I go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me, and ye shall not find me. And where I am, thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go, that we should not, shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles, and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this, that he saith, Ye seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come? In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. 
But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the Scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. We read that far in God's holy word, and we consider verses 37 <clears throat> to 39 tonight. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If a man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. The occasion for the words of Holy Scripture that we've read, and the occasion for the words that Jesus specifically speaks in our text, is the Feast of Tabernacles. We read about Jesus' teaching during the middle of that feast, but what he says in the text occurs on the last day of the feast. The Feast of Tabernacles, you see, lasted for some seven days. It was one of the three great feasts that every male adult was required to attend in Jerusalem. Jesus speaks what we read here on the last day. Every day they would gather to worship, and so this occurs on that last day. Jesus is standing in the temple when he says what he says. The feast that is being observed here like all feasts, was a feast of joy, but this one in a particular way, and really for two reasons. The first is because the Feast of Tabernacles marked the harvest. It was a giving of thanks for the completed harvest. It occurred in the seventh month when all the crops, all the grains, all the grapes, had been gathered in the barns for the people to enjoy. It was like their Thanksgiving day, only it lasted for an entire week. Imagine that. But also, as the name of the feast indicates, they were remembering something, something to have to do with tabernacles, and those tabernacles were tents, literally tents. All the people during that entire week lived in their backyards and in the streets and on the rooftops under tents, little booths made out of sticks and palm branches. It was like camping out, but they weren't simply camping out on vacation. They were remembering what they had to live in for 40 years while they were in the wilderness. And so it was a celebration of their deliverance from 40 years of wandering in the wilderness to now live in their own houses, in their own land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So combined with the harvest feast was a remembrance of what they had been delivered from. In general, this feast was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
That's the meaning of Jesus' words when he says, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Jesus here is explaining the meaning of the feast. He's explaining what it's all about. It is about drinking Him. The meaning is plain. By believing in Him, by receiving Him, one receives the harvest, the blessings of the harvest, the joy of the harvest. It is through Him and by Him that we are delivered from the wilderness. Even as Israel drank from the rock, the living waters that flowed out of the rock in the wilderness and that sustained them, so also one believes in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, one is greatly blessed with all harvest blessings and one is delivered from this life to the heavenly Canaan. That's the general meaning, but there's more. There's a more specific meaning. And that shouldn't surprise you because we're preaching this on Pentecost. You see, there was also a great connection of the Feast of Tabernacles with Pentecost. And Jesus himself makes that connection when he says what he does. When Jesus says what he does about drinking him, and that he that believeth on him out of his bellies shall flow rivers of living water, the inspired Apostle John explains what Jesus is talking about, and it's not about Jesus specifically, but about the Holy Spirit. But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on Him should receive. You see, when one asks, well, what are the great harvest blessings that one receives through Jesus Christ? What is the great water? What is the great sustenance that sustains us and nourishes us in the 40 years of wilderness wandering? What is it that's being celebrated here in these feasts? The answer is the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is those harvest blessings. And He is a fountain of living water. Consider with me this text this evening, especially as a preparatory, coming to drink the living water, coming to drink the living water, the promised water, then we consider the water's source and finally the call to drink. The connection between this passage and the Lord's Supper, specifically a preparatory for the Lord's Supper, is also the same connection that we noticed this morning, and that is especially made here in this passage, the connection between Christ and the Spirit. You see, there is something that happens when we come to the Lord's table to eat and to drink. And there is a reason why we come to the Lord's table to eat and to drink. 
There's even a reason why we come to the table to eat and to drink when we've already drunk before. And when one asks, well, what is it that we're actually receiving when we eat and drink? And if one answered the body and blood of Jesus Christ, one would be correct, but one digs a little deeper, one discovers, oh, there's more than that. What is it that one's really receiving with the body and blood of Christ? And the answer is the Spirit. You see, there's a connection here between the living waters that we're called to drink and the elements of the Lord's Supper. That's why we're considering this passage this week before the Lord's Supper. Now, when we look at this promise, what's being promised here is living water. There's a promise here. There's not simply a command to come and to drink, but there's a promise. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And the promise, of course, is that one who drinks is filled with something. They're drinking something. And that something Jesus calls a river of living waters. That's what he's drinking from. That's what he's drinking it should be obvious by now, and needs little explanation, that those living waters and that fountain or that river of living water is the Holy Spirit. And that is also the flowing of the water. That's why there's a river. Indeed, that is part of the definitive explanation of the Apostle John in verse 39. When he talks about receiving the Holy Ghost, he's talking about the receiving of the Holy Ghost on Pentecost and therefore the pouring out of that Holy Ghost on Pentecost. Now what's remarkable is that Jesus says this before Pentecost. He's speaking it before even the Passover. He's speaking it before he himself will suffer and die and be raised the third day before he ascends into heaven and before 10 days after that, Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out. And that's brought out in a rather strange way. When the Apostle John, under inspiration, adds that he's talking about this receiving of the Holy Spirit in the future. And he puts it this way, that the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Not yet given. Now, what's interesting is that if you look at your King James translations, you'll discover that the word given is inserted there. So that literally what we read is the Holy Spirit was not yet. Was not yet. Now, we do well to take attention at that. The meaning, obviously, cannot be the Spirit did not exist prior to this. The Spirit was not living prior to this. That cannot be the explanation because we know the Holy Spirit here is the Spirit of the living God. He's one of the persons of the triune being of God. He is the life of God. He lives with the life of God. A life that is eternal. A life that is unending. A life that is without begetting it is without end. And so that cannot possibly be the meaning. 
He eternally lives. He eternally is. He eternally proceeds. That's what he does in the Trinity. We confess he proceeds in his life from the Father to the Son and from the Son to the Father. Nor is the meaning that he was not yet, and even when the King James rightly adds the word given, they're grasping the meaning, we must not misunderstand. As if to think that this means the Holy Spirit was not yet given to even the Old Testament saints, was not given prior to this point to anyone in any particular way at all. That's not true either. And again, that's inferred from what Scripture says and teaches elsewhere. If one searches the Scripture, one will discover that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is one salvation. There is one means of salvation. There's only one Christ, one God of that salvation. And there's only one church. It's not like there's two churches and two completely different people. There's only one. And so the people of God in the Old Testament were saved the same way you and I are. Abraham wasn't saved in an entirely different way than you and I are. He, too, was saved by faith. In fact, he's called the father of all the faithful, father of all who have faith. He was saved by faith in Jesus Christ, even a Jesus Christ who had not come. And if you look carefully some more, you'll discover that through that faith, they received the Spirit, too. That's why we could sing tonight from the Psalms about the Spirit and what we receive when we are thirsty and we drink. That was the case also in the Old Testament. So that's really not the meaning that the Spirit was not yet or even was not yet given. What the Apostle means there, what the Holy Spirit means there, is that the Holy Spirit would now be given in a way that He had not been given before. That He would be given to the New Testament church to use and enjoy in a way that was not enjoyed and known before. That the Spirit was not yet given to them, to the people of God, to anyone prior to Pentecost, directly from Jesus Christ, who had suffered and died, and from Jesus Christ, who had been raised from the dead and also ascended. That this is the meaning, that this is the direction we must go, is by what the Apostle adds right after that, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, the fact that the Spirit was not yet is connected to the fact that the Jesus was not yet glorified. That the Spirit that was given to the Old Testament saints, the Spirit that was given to them as living water, was not yet the Spirit of Jesus who had died because Jesus had not been born yet. He had not died He had not been risen from the dead. He had not ascended into heaven and glorified. We always have to remember that. There 
there's an amazing thing going on in Scripture that we tend to forget. On the one hand, the Scripture reminds us of the source of all our salvation, how it's all in God's eternal plan. How we are all saved the same way, with the same salvation, by the same Christ, by the same God. And then there's things that are brought to our attention, like the great difference between the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints, exactly because of this pouring out of the Spirit before and after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And it reminds us, too, of the fact, the real fact, in fact, the real necessity that that occur. If one could speak sort of foolishly, one would say this and one could say this, that if Jesus had not yet come, we would pretty much be living like the Old Testament saints. And it would be vastly different than the way it is now. Not like there would be a whole new salvation, but we would be looking forward more. We look back. We look back on what God has done, what God has done as He has promised. And it shows once again that we are saved in time. Not just eternity, but in time. In time, God sent His Son In the fullness of time, He comes. Pentecost comes at a specific time. And there's a great difference between the pouring out of the living water of the Spirit prior to Christ and after Christ. This should not surprise us. Simply look at the second person who will be glorified. There's a great, great difference between the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, prior to the Incarnation. After the Incarnation, He has a human nature, a real human nature. He is united to that human nature. And that wasn't there before. There were manifestations of it. There were hints that it was coming. There's even appearances of Him in the Old Testament. But it's not the same, is it? And so we can say, well, Jesus was not yet. Was not yet given. Was not yet come. And that same kind of idea now is applied to the Holy Spirit. Now you see why Pentecost was really the fulfillment of the very feasts when Jesus said this. Jesus was teaching something. You've been observing this feast, and it's a time of joy, and it's connected to your salvation, and it has to do with the Holy Scriptures and God and faith and all these things, but it's not the fulfillment. The Feast of Tabernacles and the great harvest blessings and the receiving of them and the joying them and all the joy of your eating and drinking that's going on and all your remembrance of deliverance from the wilderness into the land of Canaan is all fulfilled and really cannot be fulfilled until the Spirit is poured out as a river of living water. That has something to do also with the richness and the fullness and even the extent of this salvation. Again, the Scriptures emphasize this. If one looks at the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the pouring of the Spirit then and later, 
Even as there is with Christ himself, and one looks at it, one will discover the difference is a difference in riches. The extent of those riches, the extent of that salvation. And you understand that this is what Jesus is expressing. When he doesn't simply speak of living water, but a river's. Rivers, not just river either, but rivers of living waters. What's going on? Jesus is explaining the great significance of Pentecost, and we capture it with that word pouring. There's a pouring. There's really a flood. That's the word that's used here, a flood. The Holy Spirit is the living life of God. He is the life of God. And wherever He has gone, wherever He has been, He has brought life. He is the life that was there at the very beginning of the whole creation of the world. The Holy Spirit was there. The Holy Spirit was the agent of God, was there working. The Holy Spirit is all over sustaining life, the life of every creature. Where does it come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. The reference here is to spiritual life, not physical life. And it's talking especially now about the great diversity, the great richness, the great extent now of that water. The figure is this. There was always a river, always a river flowing, always a river of life, a river of the Spirit. But after Pentecost, now there's a flood. You have to think of the mighty Mississippi, this great, great river of life. And then there's a flood, a flood like no one's ever seen, where the river overflows its banks Overflank flows its banks by just not a bit, but miles and miles and miles. And the water there makes new channels, new rivulets, so that there's rivers all over the place of this same water. That's the idea of Pentecost. In the Old Testament, there was a river, a river of living water. There was lots of water, saved lots of people, but now the river is going to overflow its banks. And that water is going to reach peoples it never reached before. It's going to give them life. It's going to give life in amazing ways. There's going to be a richness of that life extended all over the place. And we may even say, if we can think that way, that there's a different quality to that water in that it's a water of life now that flows right out of Christ who has come. Christ who has died. Christ who has given His life for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Who has come and been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven so that that water now comes not simply as life, but it comes as a, a seal, as a guarantee. It's amazing water. Now, that metaphor of a flood, that metaphor of a river of living waters comes with something else, in fact, something quite surprising. We learn about the promised reality of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. 
And that is, on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was a flood of living water that not only poured into the church, that reached the church, that came to and into, but flowed out. That flowed out of the church. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Did you notice that? Remember now, the Holy Apostle John has said what Jesus is talking about is the Spirit that they shall receive that was not yet. So one would not expect that word to be used. You would expect. You would expect Jesus to say this, that he that believeth on me into him will flow living waters. That's how you receive, right? By taking in. But Jesus doesn't say that, does He? He says the rivers are going to flow out. And we have to do justice to that. And when you look at it, it's really amazing. In fact, it's not surprising at all because it's exactly what happened at Pentecost. You see, when you read the Bible, you cannot read it without understanding. And obviously if something is flowing out of something, it first flowed in. So that it flows out implies that it flowed in. It doesn't have to state that. You simply know it. If you see a river of water and you see it flowing out of somewhere, you know it flew, flew, uh, flowed into that first. It went into the reservoir. Then it came out. It went into the river before it could come out. And that's what's going on here. And simply look at Pentecost. What happened? Well, there was a flood of living water that was poured out from God, came from Christ in heaven, flowed out, and it was poured out on 120 believers. It came to them. They received it. They heard the signs. They saw the signs. And they, well, then what happened? It flowed out, didn't it? So as it flowed in, it flowed out. They began to speak. They began to speak in tongues. They flowed out of that room and they flowed out all over Jerusalem. And they began to speak and talk and tell everyone. But what was flowing out? Just words? Just strange languages? No, there was a flood of living water that flowed out of them. It was a testimony. And people began to gather and say, tell us. And that water started to flow into them. Peter is preaching. And that flowing living water is flowing out of people into other people. So that they began to speak. Men and brethren, what shall we do? They're pricked in their heart. They repent. They believe. They're baptized. And they go somewhere else. And they began to speak. And then there's thousands more into which that water flows. And then it flows and flows and flows and flows until it covers the whole earth. That is what's being talked about here. You see, it has to do with the Spirit and where he comes from, and the figure of water. You know water, right? Why is it that water flows? Why does water flow down a river? Why does it flow where it flows? And the answer is, water seeks its level. That's always what it does, right? It seeks the level of itself as a source. What's the source? God in heaven. So the water's going to go back there, isn't it? Out of heaven flows a river of living water and it 
reaches someone, they receive it, what's going to happen? That water's going to return back to God. It has to flow out back to Him. That's what happens first. That's why we're here today. We're, we're, we're here not simply to receive living water, but we're here because that water's got to flow back to God. It's got to reach Him. And, and it's why those who receive the living water sometimes don't feel so good when they neglect their prayers, when they neglect their reading of Scripture, when they neglect to meditate upon God, doesn't feel good, doesn't feel right. There's something wrong. You don't, and you say, what's going on? And the answer is because that water, that water wants to go back to God. It's seeking its own level, and it will go back to God. But that's not the only place it flows. It flows to others. Flows to others through the church. The flood of living waters goes into the church, and then it leaves the church. A church that simply receives this flood of living waters and says, it's mine, I'm taking it for myself, I'm going to drink all that I can, and tries to hold it in, can't do it. They'll die. There's even a truth there from earthly life. If all you do is drink, it doesn't flow out of you in some way, you die. That's what happens to the church that won't do missions. That's what happens to the church that has no interest outside of its walls. That's, a, that, 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 that's what happens. Not only will you find that that's a church that really doesn't give glory to God, there may be a lot of things going on in the worship service, but there's really no flowing of the living water back to God, no return of it in any way. And it has to go back. Because that's, after all, who the Spirit is. That's what the Spirit always does. The Spirit proceeds from the Father to the Son. The Son don't get to keep it. He proceeds back from the Son to the Father. God gives us the Spirit. We receive the Spirit. It's got to go right back to God. But that's not it. It has to go elsewhere. It has to go out into all the world. God sends forth that flood because He expects that flood to reach every corner, every place. And that's what we do as missions. The church that won't do that is not faithful and doesn't understand that what it's drinking is living water. But it returns back to God also through one another. When we speak to one another. When we bring the Word to one another. When you go up to another and say, Brother, I understand you're going through some hard times. Let me comfort you with the Word of God. This is what's coming out. This is what's flowing out. What really should be flowing out when a mother or a father is rearing their children. If all that comes out of them is pizzas and hamburgers and jeans and shirts, that's not good. What has to flow out of mom and dad is a fountain of living water. Spiritual things. Matters pertaining to God and to His kingdom. This is even what goes on when we have to go to a brother and rebuke him to say, brother, that's not the way you should be living. That's not a godly way. That's not in harmony with the Holy Spirit. What's coming out of us is a fountain of living water. This, you see, explains why we preach. This explains why we do what we do. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, Come and drink, and out of him shall flow rivers rivers of living water. Now, 
What's the source? Obviously, there's a source. And the ultimate source is God. There should be no dispute about that. There should be no misunderstanding about that. And we mention it, lest we forget. The source of the water is God. He's talking about the Spirit. And he explains that the Spirit was not yet because Christ was not glorified. It should be obvious that this is a fountain of living water, a river of living water, living waters that flow from Christ who is alive, who is alive with the very Spirit that will be poured out and comes on Pentecost. And where does it come? From Christ and through Christ. But again, that's not the only source that comes out of us. It doesn't originate in us, but it comes out of us. There's a source there. There's a source as a channel is a source. A river overflows its bank and goes into channels, and it's just that there's channels for all this living water. But notice, it's worse than that, stranger than that. It's the belly. The belly. Again, you wouldn't expect that. What would you expect? Well, you'd expect, how about the soul? How about the mind? How about the heart? And then it comes out of our heart. Why? Well, we receive this water in the heart. We know that. It affects our mind. It gives us knowledge. So why wouldn't it flow out of the mind or even the soul? But that, again, is not what Jesus says. It's out of the belly. Again, this should fit. It shouldn't be all that strange if you think about it. When you drink water, where does it go? Into the belly. So if it's going to flow out, where's it going to flow out from? From the belly. But there's another reason Jesus is using that word, and he's emphasizing something, something very wonderful and special about the Spirit that it's worth taking note of, because again, it's connected to the Lord's table. You see, when we come to the Lord's table, we know we're fed, right? We go to the Lord's table, we're fed, we're, we eat and drink something, and we know it, it nourishes us, it, it does something. And we often can capture that, but we often don't meditate upon it as much as we ought or realize really what it is that are the benefits of the Lord's table as we ought. We can even sometimes sterilize it and make it generic. We can do the same thing with, with food, although we don't tend to do it with food. And if you think about it, it fits with food. What is it? Well, it affects you, doesn't it? Sometimes we eat food, we eat too much food because it's enjoyable. And where do we enjoy it? In the belly. And that's what Jesus is getting at. You see, the belly is the biblical place for feelings. We might think it's the heart, but it's actually the belly that's often invoked about that. Especially when it comes to feelings of grace and mercy and compassion. We read how many times of the bowels of compassion. That's the idea here. It's what we can refer to crudely as the gut, deep inside. And we speak that way too, don't we? When we have a premonition, we say we feel it. Where? In our gut. It's not up here, it's down here. When you run across somebody who's beaten and in distress and trouble where do you feel that you feel it in your belly you feel it deep the compassion the pity it all stems from there when you feel deep sorrow your feelings 
are down there in the belly. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's teaching something. He's saying when the Holy Spirit comes, He, of course, brings life. He brings salvation. We talked about that this morning. Not going to repeat it. Everything, every aspect of salvation comes with Him. But it's felt. It's felt. Salvation is something you experience, you feel, and you feel it very, very deeply, so much so that Jesus even talks about these fountains of living water going right to the belly and coming back out the belly. I.e., don't minimize feelings. Don't ignore the fact that you feel hurt and pain. You feel pity and compassion. You feel grace. You even feel joy and delight deep in the belly. It explains a lot of our behavior, even from an earthly sense. But think about it now, spiritually applied. Imagine, imagine what salvation Imagine what a spiritual life without any feelings would be. Well, think about just an earthly life without feelings or any sense of emotion or joy. We try to bury that and cover that. It's really silly, not very smart. They're gifts of God. Not just crying, but laughing. Enjoyment. Feeling enjoyment. We make it an idol. We pursue it. In many ways, much of the behavior of mankind is a mad pursuit of feelings and pleasure, but then we can re-overact and say, well, that's all bad, that's not good. That's not true. Imagine your earthly life without any feelings. No sense of pain. No sense of sorrow. You drove by and you saw something that it really ought to tear your heart out and you're as cold as stone. We have words for people like that. Psychopaths. Things like that. Well, those are all just pictures. We have to ask ourselves, what's a salvation? What's a deliverance? What's a life without spiritual feelings of compassion, bowels of mercy? What is it like if we don't feel it in our belly? Salvation, don't misunderstand, is a matter of the mind. It's a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of the soul. It's a matter of the heart. Make no mistake. But if you cut off the belly... There's nothing there to enjoy. What's the forgiveness of sins without peace? To put it another way, the Holy Spirit, when He brings the forgiveness of sins, brings peace with it. It should bring peace. When He brings the deliverance from the sins that we commit, there should be a sense of that power. One should feel a certain power over against the devil and his dominion that's coursing through the body. What one should feel, should feel, for example, the joy and delight of being able to do what one otherwise could not do. Sort of like the lame man would feel if all of a sudden he was given to walk. That's what Jesus is talking about. And don't minimize it. In fact, I can prove it if I haven't already. Why do you think the Heidelberg Catechism is perhaps the most loved creed of all? Why is it the one creed that we preach? And the answer is because it reaches our belly. It doesn't simply come to our heads. It doesn't simply fill our heads 
with doctrinal statements and truths. It's not simply cold and objective and abstract. There's nothing there. This reaches the belly and affects us. What is your comfort? Their question is asked over and over again. What's the profit? What's the benefit? How does this make you feel? What do you feel? And Jesus brings that up here. There's also something there too because only then really does it flow out of you too. You see, when you feel it in the belly, the idea is that's sort of a power in itself. It serves to have that water flow back out. Let me put it another way. Only a church that has experienced the comfort and joy of salvation is going to go teach others that, isn't it? If you ask yourself, why would a church not want to bring the gospel to other people? And the answer is, well, that's a church that doesn't know the excitement and the joy in their belly of that living water. So they're not interested. There's nothing there. What is it that brings a child of God to church Sunday after Sunday? And it's not anything but the joy of this living water. It's not going to be anything that looks like entertainment, anything that looks like it's competing with the world's pleasures. It's going to be that here you drink living water and you feel it in your belly. And you say, oh, does that taste good? Oh, is that satisfying? And only then does it flow back out of you so that you return. Or you teach others. Or you tell your children. Or your grandchildren. Only if you feel it in here are you going to go to a brother and say, brother, you may live that way. Come. Come drink from the living water. Put away your wine. Put away all your pleasures and your money and your craziness. Come drink the living water. Feel what I feel. See? So, we should be surprised. Shouldn't we? Surprised not only that there's water coming out of our belly and not out of our mind or our mouth or whatever else Jesus could said, but out of our belly, but even that it comes out of our belly at all. Why Why should that surprise us? And the answer is, well, this is living water. This is living water from heaven. And who are you? Well, you're an earthly creature, number one. You're dirt. You're dust. That's proof, you see, that this living water didn't originate as such from our belly. There's another origin. It has to because... There's no such life. There's no such water in us. Yes, we're dust, and there's a certain life to us. But it's not lasting very long. It's certainly not living water. It's very fragile life. What's going on? Well, the answer is, first of all, you're just a creature. You're a creature that's being sustained from somewhere else to begin with. And number two, that life is being taken away because you're a sinner. That life is being dried up from elsewhere too. It's being dried up and you're being parched because of God's wrath and anger against sin. So the fact that living water flows out of us ought to make us think and be astounded and realize where it's coming from. The Bible does that from time to time to remind us that 
if we get excited about living water flowing out of us but cannot connect it to the reality of how it got there, we've missed something. There's also going to be no joy and pleasure in that. Pretty soon one will be proud and lifted up. My might and my strength have gotten me the victory. No, no. So Jesus is bringing to this to us in a very striking way to make us reflect on that. And then, and then Jesus says something that just also doesn't seem to fit whatsoever, but it follows from what we were just talking about. If one realizes there's water flowing out of their belly and realizes that they're not the source of it, it means that it has to come in somewhere. And so Jesus connects this remarkable statement to a call, a call to come and to drink. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, <coughs> let him come to me and drink. Now coming and drinking is very simple. What Jesus is referring to is believing. Believing in him, because that's what he says. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture says, out of him shall flow fountains of living water. Here Jesus is explaining how it is that the fountains can flow out, how the rivers, where they come from. And they come from first drinking. Come to me and drink. And what is drinking, he says? Believing on him. That's very simple, very plain, not difficult. But it's that call. Now notice this is a call that he issues with some seriousness. Jesus doesn't say, it's not necessary. You're going to receive the Spirit anyway. Since it comes from heaven and it's just poured out, and poured out with any help from you, God just pours it out. That should be evident on Pentecost. What were they doing on Pentecost? Well, they were following the orders of Jesus. Jesus told them to stay put, not to go anywhere until he poured out the Spirit. And they were doing that, but then their Spirit was. Came in a way they probably didn't expect. As sounds and sights, and then they're speaking. What do you have to do with the fountain of living water? And the answer is really nothing. And yet, come and drink. There's more going on here than meets the eye. Notice that this is a call he continues to issue. He's having it preached to you tonight. And make no mistake, he's preaching the same thing. If any man thirst, come to me and drink. This isn't a call that Jesus issues once and then he's done. Or even, even as if there's fountains of living water, does he stop issuing that call? People may think that way. Well, I'm saved. What do I need Jesus for? Or even worse, we're saved. Why are you preaching it? Why are you telling us to come and drink? Why, we're already filled with water. We have all kinds of water flowing out of our belly. Or worse still, don't preach come and drink because that would imply that the belly and the flowing and all that has to do with what you did. All of that is nonsense. And all of that is against what our Lord Jesus Christ teaches. Come and drink. 
This is the call he's issuing right now in this church with regard to the Lord's table. You see the river of living water and the living water are represented in the Lord's Supper by the bread and the wine. It's really the same thing. Jesus is talking about the same thing and that's evident when you look at our form. How do you eat and drink next Sunday? And the answer is by faith, by believing in Jesus. And we need to be oil-minded when we believe in Jesus. It's as if we're eating him and drinking his blood or the living water. Take your pick. Now, I want to connect this to something we preached about this morning and that I left out of the sermon somewhat deliberately and somewhat because I was pressed for time. But we asked the question this morning, well, who is it that receives the promise? Who is the promise unto? Who is it for? Who does God promise the Holy Spirit? And I answered that in a number of ways, and I answered it in such a way to make clear that it was not a universal promise. Oh, it's preached universally. There's many who hear it. It goes out, but it's a particular promise. The content is for particular people. Only particular people will receive it. And it was very plain who those were. But I never mentioned how the Lord made it plain in that passage. Who is it that receives the promise? Well, the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off than what? Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. I didn't preach on that, did I? That's because we're going to consider it tonight. You see, the promise is to those and for those and those only whom the Lord calls. That's it. It's not for anybody that He doesn't call. And it's only for those whom He does call. Period. End of story. In other words, again, it's a particular promise and who the Spirit comes to is particular. But now perhaps you look at that call and you say, well, that's quite a universal call. Isn't that call go out to everybody? Isn't everybody able to hear that call? And the answer is, no. Is Jesus calling everyone to come and drink? Is he? No. Who does he call to come and drink? The answer is, the thirsty. A saying, if any man thirst, let him come and drink. You see, not everyone is thirsty. Now that might surprise you, and it might seem that that's the case, but it's not. Not everyone is thirsty. Everybody should be thirsty, or at least recognize their thirst, but they're, they're not thirsty. And there's something even here in this picture that's amazing. You see, in the first place, we live in a world that doesn't live in the desert. They don't recognize they live in the desert. If you ask them, where are they living? They're living in Egypt. They're by these big, broad streams and rivers that produce richness of crops and gold in abundance, and we are just fine. We don't need any water, certainly any living water. We have everything we need here. You preach the living water, and you preach the command, come and drink, and there will be many, many, many people that say, sorry, not interested, I'm not thirsty. Then there's another picture that we can use, which is, you see, you have to be alive to be thirsty. Dead people aren't thirsty. Uh, there's all kinds of funeral homes and graves and things where 
People certainly are dry. Oh, there's no mistake that they're parched dry. They could use liquid. They could use living water. But they're not thirsty. They're dead. And remember now that that's the picture of the spiritual man. The spiritual man is dead by nature. That's what he is. All men are dead. So the fact that this call even comes to the thirsty, number one, teaches that it's a particular call. It's not to all men, only the thirsty. Only those who know they're thirsty. Only those who know that they're dry and parched. That's not everyone. Number two, it implies something. That that thirsty person is already alive. (laughs) Oh yes. When that thirsty person comes to Christ and he drinks, he receives the living water, but he's already alive. He has to be alive, otherwise he couldn't thirst. And then it teaches a second thing, which is the nature of our soul. Jesus is teaching so much here, but he's teaching us about the nature of our salvation. It's never like this. Well, I'm alive, therefore I don't have to eat. I'm alive, therefore why I don't need to come and drink. That would be as foolish as an individual who says, I'm alive, I don't have to sit down at the dinner table and eat. They're running a marathon and says, well, I'm alive, I'm doing great. I don't need to drink that water as I pass by. We would say, that person's really, really foolish. And that's the picture, too, in the Lord's table. Did it ever strike you that on the one hand, the gift of the Holy Spirit is connected with baptism? We saw that this morning. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now we have it with drinking. And it's a drinking, clearly, that's just not a one-time deal. You thirst, you drink, you're good. That's the other sacrament. Four times a year, we come here, and we eat, and we drink. And you all know, that's why we're here every Sunday. Every seven days, we come here, and we come here to drink. Now, if you ask yourself, why is that? Why is that? The answer is, because Jesus has called you. Jesus always calls you. He continues to call you. He doesn't call you once. But all in your life, He's saying, come. Come, thirsty. Come here and drink. And you see, there's the grace of it all. Anybody who says that that receiving of the water and the flowing out then depends upon your coming and drinking is a moron spiritually. Is that the way it works in real life? Is that the way it is even here in the passage? Like I said, one ought to be surprised that one is even thirsty, let alone that out of their own belly is coming living water. It's because of the Spirit and how He works. It's the Spirit who brings it all and gives it all and does so in its grace. In fact, that is the grace. Take that away and you have no grace. Make this all a matter of this or that and this order and that order and you have no grace. Exactly because it's come and drink, it's grace. And what you drink is grace. And what you receive is grace. That is what we celebrate at Pentecost. And that is what we celebrate at the Lord's table. We come not only to be fed to eat and to drink, but to marvel that we're even thirsty. To marvel that once again the Lord has provided for us sinners, free of charge, no cost to you. Drink. Living water. 
in a living water that creates thirst for more water. You say, why is that? Well, partly because of sin. Partly it's the nature of the Spirit. Partly it's the nature of life. Partly it's the nature of even the spiritual life. It has to be sustained. That's not going to end. You're going to leave this life and enter into heaven. Do you think that life is going to be sustained there? Of course it is. You and I are going to live an everlasting life, body and soul. This parched, old, dusty body is going to fall off, return back to the dust, and then it's going to be enlivened with the Spirit in a way that reflects that it certainly is animated now by the Spirit that now is. The Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ descended, and it's going to be sustained it's still going to be drinking that living water, and out of it's going to be flowing living water. Do you ever notice the pictures of heaven? You might be enamored with the pictures of heaven or the church as gold and silver and jewels, but in every single picture, there's a river. There's a river flowing. And it flows from the throne. It flows from Jesus Christ himself. And all manner of life grows out of that water. That water is the great great gift of the Spirit. Amen. Let's turn now to the form for the Lord's Supper. And read that part for self-examination on page 91. talks about examining ourselves and the true examination of ourselves consisting of three parts. Notice these are much of what we considered today. First, that everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them to the end that he may abhor and humble himself before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that rather than it should go unpunished, he hath punished the Son in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Consider your thirst. Secondly, that everyone examine his own heart whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ. And that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as his own, yea, so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Come and drink. Thirdly, that everyone examine his own conscience, whether he purposeth henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his own life, and to walk uprightly before him, as also whether he hath laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and doth firmly resolve henceforth to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. And that's an examination whether there's a river of water flowing out of your belly. Let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word, the truth of Thy Word, and the great gift of the Holy Spirit, and that through that great gift we may recognize our thirst, be able to come unto Thee, our God, and drink, and drink again in the Lord's table. O Lord, we thank Thee, we praise Thee, and we pray that even in this week, out of our belly may come a fountain of this river of water. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.